Hello, everybody, and welcome into the newest edition of the Just In Time Sports Podcast. I am your host, Justin Jackson, and you can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the biggest NFL news, including Cam Newton to New England. Also, we'll be discussing more about the more details we're getting from the NBA about their bubble. Also, we'll discuss the new bubble. We'll also touch on Maya Moore and her impact, and we'll have our best for last. Now, I hope you guys sit back and get ready to learn something. Alrighty, guys, and we're back. And then this week's opening segment, we're going to start off with the NFL news. And we're going to start off with the NFL news that broke Sunday with Cam Newton signing a one-year veteran minimum deal to succeed Tom Brady in New England for the Patriots. Now, this deal is, as I mentioned, a veteran minimum deal, and he's only guaranteed about 550 grand out of the little over 1 million that the veteran minimum requires for a player with his experience. Now, for both sides, I think it's a great deal. Obviously, for New England, you get an MVP level talent for basically nothing. In order to get any money, which he can be incentivized up to $7.5 million, he has to meet incentives. So you're willing to pay Cam Newton $7.5 million, or any quarterback really, $7.5 million to contribute to a winning program. There hasn't been any word on the exact incentives he has to meet. Some of those incentives are tied to roster bonuses and him even being on the team, which I have no doubt in that, barring that him and Belichick have a falling out or that he gets injured again. But he has incentives to meet to get up to $7.5 million. Now, if Cam Newton brings them to a division win, brings them to a conference championship game, or even a Super Bowl or a special Super Bowl win, Belichick looks like a genius that he ended up getting his successor for Tom Brady for pennies on the dollar, what he was having to pay Tom Brady to stay because Robert Kraft was willing to match Tampa Bay's offer for Brady for $25 million a year over two years. And if he has more success than Brady has in Tampa or he has usual Patriot level success we've been accustomed to over the past 20 years, which is winning the division and advancing deep into the playoffs with a quarterback for seven and a half million dollars. Then Bill Belichick looks like the genius that he is. And so that was a great move by the Patriots. And for Cam Newton, what a great opportunity. Um, An amazing opportunity. You have a culture and an environment in New England that's accustomed to winning. Those guys up there have been to nine Super Bowls in 20 years. That's about 45% of the time you play a Super Bowl, the Patriots earn it. Um, And they won 66% of those attempts by winning six Super Bowls out of nine. Amazing opportunity for Cam Newton. You get to work with an offensive coordinator like Josh McDaniels. And we've seen where in New England, quarterbacks get paid when leaving New England. Matt Castle got paid. Jimmy Garoppolo got paid. Jacoby Brissett got paid. Jared Stidham could have been the next quarterback to get paid. We're still unsure about that because Cam Newton is there now. But Cam only signing a one-year deal sets himself up. So like I said, if he hits all those incentives and the Patriots are in a conference championship game and Cam Newton has a pretty good to great year, then he goes onto the market at 31, 32 years old, showed that he was healthy, showed that he can work in a system that's not specifically designed for him like it was in Carolina and catered to all of his needs like it was in Carolina. And now he would force the Patriots to either pay him a long-term contract franchise tag him for a boatload of money, which will be more money than he's ever made in his career in a single year, 
or he gets the opportunity to hit the open market and maybe a Jacksonville makes a move or if Dallas can't come to terms with Dak Prescott they look at a Cam Newton or replacing Drew Brees in New Orleans even though James Winston is there he's getting older he might replace Tom Brady again in Tampa Bay because Tampa has a down the field bombs away offense traditionally under Bruce Arians which is what Cam Newton's strength is so it gives Cam Newton the opportunity to go deep into the playoffs deep as he's been since his MVP year where he made it to the Super Bowl ultimately losing to a great Denver Broncos team in defense it gives the Patriots an opportunity to stay relevant, to stay very relevant. Because before this, and I'm a Patriots guy, Jared Stidham worried me. Jared Stidham worried a lot of Patriots fans, made them a little uninteresting. Uh, we don't know a lot about Jared Stidham at the pro level. He's only thrown a handful of passes, one of those being a pick six to Jamal Adams. So we don't know what he can do at the NFL level. But in terms of interest, if they started off 0-1, 0-2, they were going to get bumped off national TV. They were going to get moved to local TV and the interest was going to fade in the Patriots, except for the story of, wow, they could have had Brady because look at what he's doing in Tampa Bay. So now with Cam Newton, they still are in title contention, in my opinion. They become the division leaders. They become the division favorites. If I was a fan of Buffalo or Miami today, I'm groaning. I am just I've been depressed all week. If you're one of those fan bases, because you, Buffalo, you're hearing all offseason, especially after Brady leaves, you're the favorite. You're the guys to beat. Pretty much you're going to have to get to 20 points to beat the Patriots because no one knows what Stidham can do. Most experts didn't think Stidham was going to lead a very high-powered offense. Brady didn't even do it last year. And so you were thinking, we can win this division, get the playoff berth, host the game in Buffalo, and this can get interesting for us. If you're a Dolphins fan, you're thinking, man, we're on the rise. We drafted Tua Tagovailoa. We got a great coach, Brian Flores, from the Patriots. We have a lot of different things going for us. And now the Patriots no longer have Brady, or Gronk for that matter. Now it's time for us to attack. And then the Patriots go get Cam Newton for a bag of peanuts, a pocket of lint, and a possible can of Coke, depending on incentives. Now, Newton said it himself. He is doing this for respect, not money. I think that statement is very strong. He's received a little blowback from fans. Uh, some calling him a diva. Some saying that his antics when he celebrates touchdowns won't be warranted or appreciated or even tolerated by Bill Belichick or the New England fan base. Those comments aren't shocking coming out of that area. Um, former players have said that it was laughable when they heard that because they were encouraged by Bill Belichick. It was a reward to celebrate with your teammates on Sunday after working so hard during the week to get to that point, your reward is going out and playing the game and have fun with your teammates when you do something great. So the thought process that Cam Newton doing the Superman or even dabbing when he scores a touchdown won't be appreciated or tolerated by Bill Belichick is overblown, according to former players. But I think this is a great fit. I think the pressure is honestly on Cam Newton. I mean, even the contract structure only being guaranteed a half a million dollars and having to incentivize your way all the way up to seven and a half million dollars. You're stepping in the winged cleats of Tom Brady and what he did for that community and what he did for that team and that fan base and that owner and that coach. I mean, Tom Brady helped revitalize and make the brand that we know of as the Patriots today. He is under a lot of pressure to revitalize his own career. And he's a lot of pressure to win over a fan base that's used to Tom Brady. They're used to what Tom Brady's going to bring every Sunday, a locker room, 
is what Tom Brady's gonna bring every Sunday. Now we see Muhammad Sanu. He and Muhammad Sanu have worked out. Uh, Julian Edelman typed in a weird font that Cam Newton does, a Photoshop picture of him and Newton on the field already, calling it Newton, Massachusetts. So it'll be very interesting to see that um, and to see how that goes. Now we shift to the Washington Redskins and what's going on there. A coalition of investors uh, worth about $620 billion, yes, billion with a B, have pushed major sponsors of the Redskins to withdraw their support financially until the team in Washington changes their name. Now, the term Redskins is a derogatory term for Native Americans. Uh, Native Americans have spoken out against this name and they've spoken out against several other names like the mascot for the Cleveland Indians. They got them to change that. The Atlanta Braves had a mascot that they were not a fan of and they got uh, Native Americans got the team to change that. But Dan Snyder and the previous owner of the Redskins have been staunch in keeping that the same, uh, believing that it was going to hurt them financially if they changed the name. So they kept the name uh, despite public outcry against it. They ignored it, that sat in their ivory towers above it all, and the name remained. Now, multiple sponsors, including FedEx, who is the stadium sponsor, has told the Redskins they would like for them to change the name. I think the name should be changed. I think if one person in a group is offended by something, then it should be definitely evaluated. But if an entire section of a group believes that the term used is a derogatory term, then it is that a derogatory term and should be eliminated from mainstream use, if at all possible. Now, I think Dan Snyder will do this. Dan Snyder is a businessman. He's a tech guy. He knows money. And he knows that losing stadium sponsors and losing big backing of sponsors would crush him financially and make the team a bit of a black pit, especially when it comes to the lack of fans expected at stadiums this year. And if no stadium sponsor decides to fill his tarped areas to make up his money, he will be hemorrhaging money during the season. And I don't think Daniel Snyder wants that. Now, he won't change his name for the best reasons. Um, I don't think he'll change it because it's morally the right thing to do. But I do think he'll change it to help financially and to alleviate some of the pressure. Now, he'll make some grand statement. He'll do a press conference. He'll change the name and announce new logos and all of that in one fell swoop. But I don't know how soon that'll be. I don't know if it'll happen this season, next season, 10 seasons from now. But I do think the name will change. I think that there's hope for the name to change more than any other time. And I think that the name should change. And I am glad that the sponsors are putting pressure on Daniel Snyder finally to change the name from that derogatory term in the Redskins to a different name for the Washington area. And now we're going to shift to a couple of smaller stories. Um, Antonio Brown has been linked, as I said last week, to the Seattle Seahawks, along with the Baltimore Ravens with his cousin, Hollywood Brown, to really help out Lamar Jackson give him a true number one receiver. Well, maybe he has the inside track into a landing spot in Seattle. We've got video of, he posted video of Russell Wilson and him working out together. Antonio Brown still looks quick. He still looks crisp. He was running those routes pretty well. And Russell Wilson seemed to have adjusted to Antonio Brown's speed pretty easily. Uh, obviously, it's a highlight video of sorts, so we don't know if they had any missed timings or AB might have dropped a couple or Russ missed. But I mean, neither one of those things are very likely. Antonio Brown has one of the surest pair of hands 
arguably in NFL history. And Russell Wilson is an extremely accurate quarterback. So the fact that they were working out together, obviously it's on Russell's home turf. I'm not too confident in the theory that Russell may have gone to him. So obviously it's on Russell's home turf. Maybe he was in there talking about Seattle. Antonio Brown could have expressed that he wants a second chance or a third chance or a fourth chance at this thing. And Russell, being the kind of guy he is, may have gone up to Pete Carroll and said, we got to give this guy a chance. Seattle is the breath of a true number one receiver. They have DK Metcalf and they have Tyler Lockett, but a guy like Antonio Brown is on a completely different level. Now, AB would have to get used to blocking. Seattle runs the ball over 50% of the time, even with a Hall of Fame talent and a Hall of Fame quarterback in Russell Wilson. They like to run the ball and play 1990s football and not 2020 football. So it had to be very interesting to see Antonio Brown willing to block. Although in New England, he threw a couple of nice blocks in the one game he was on the field. So they'll have to definitely change that about him and his mentality. But I think he could work in Seattle. Everybody works in Seattle. It's kind of weird. It's one of Russell Wilson's best qualities. He takes literally nobodies and makes them work. For instance, Tyler Lockett was seen as like a gadget guy. And he was like a number one receiver on a football team. And then DK Metcalf was seen as a big guy who runs really fast and run direction. Don't ask him to cut. Don't ask him to run Chris routes. It's not going to work. And now he's viewed in a lot of circles as one of the futures at the receiver position. Will Disley was a unknown tight end. And when he got hurt, people looked at it like, oh, my God, they lost Will Disley. When the year prior or earlier in the offseason, nobody would have known about a Will Disley even being on Seattle's roster unless you were a huge fan of the team or a beat writer. So I think Russell Wilson bringing Antonio Brown in would be huge for him. It would be huge for both sides, everyone involved. The potential would be enormous. It would be similar to a Cam Newton deal, maybe not as low in base because of Seattle's cap situation. They have a little more to offer, but it would be very incentive based, a lot of roster bonuses, and it would be one, maybe two years to give Antonio Brown a chance to go back into free agency and see what he can get. And now we're going to shift quickly to Chris Jones of the Kansas City Chiefs, who's looking for a new deal. Uh, he said on social media and through reports that he will not play this season on the franchise tag and that Le'Veon Bell showed him the way. He's looking for a deal, according to reports, around $20 million a year. So extrapolate that over five years. You're looking at what Amari Cooper got in Dallas for a receiver or what Demarcus Lawrence got for Dallas at uh, five years, $100 million. I honestly don't think that can be possible in Kansas City. We're already looking at uh, Kansas City making a landmark deal for Patrick Mahomes. Like I said previously, I'm thinking five years, $225 million, give or take. That'll add on to the last two years of the current contract. So you're looking at probably seven years in the neighborhood of $260 million added all together. And so I don't know where the $20 million a year could be even possible for a defensive tackle on a team that didn't have that great of a defense to begin with. And so maybe they spend that $20 million on two quality defensive players instead of one really good defensive player. So maybe they tag him and then trade him. But I don't think that'd be a possible way for him to get his big contract out of the Kansas City Chiefs or many places that were paid in general, considering he's a defensive tackle and not a defensive end. Aaron Donald got huge money as a quote unquote defensive tackle, but he plays in a lot. So he's very versatile and he's the best player, in my opinion, in the NFL entirely. 
arguably with Patrick Mahomes. So when you've got a guy making that kind of money in Aaron Donald, and you look at a guy like Chris Jones, that doesn't really add up in terms of the dollars being the same and the demands being the same. But I applaud him for going to get his money. I applaud the players now in the NFL for fighting back against the structure. But I just don't think it's possible in Kansas City. I don't know where it would be possible at this current moment in time. Maybe a lower team like a Jacksonville may, may be willing to do it, but I don't see them doing it either. You've got Kansas City not doing it because of Mahomes. San Francisco got rid of DeForest Buckner because they have to pay too many guys. I'm not seeing a place where it could happen, but I applaud him for trying, for having demands. Jadavion Clowney was in the same boat, and now he's looking to have to take a small one-year deal and try and get another bite at the apple. So maybe Chris Jones has to do the same thing. But we'll be watching that situation carefully. And up next, we're going to talk about the bubble for the NBA and some things that's going on inside of that. Alrighty, guys, and we're back. And now we're going to discuss the NBA and a little bit more about their bubble and what's happening inside of the bubble. So when it comes to testing, they tested 340 some odd players with 25 total positive tests, including the original 16. Uh, That is a very low percentage. All of those players have gone into stuff quarantine for 14 days. According to Adam Silver, they are testing daily. They are going to make this thing happen, barring a massive outbreak. Now, he didn't put a specific quantifying number on it. He didn't say, okay, if we get 10% of the league or we get 10% of the stars, we're going to shut this thing down. But he did say an outbreak throughout the community would shut it down. So the community would be staffers who they also tested over 800 of them with, I believe, 10 tests were positive. So when you have such a small number of people that's positive, you quarantine those guys, you test everyone daily, and then you test everyone for to get on the plane and go to Orlando. If the bubble remains secure, there shouldn't be any problems once people are in the bubble. Just looking at some of the aerial shots of the area of Disney, they've got blocked off. I mean, this thing looks impressive. They are wheeling in and building practice courts for every team that's going to be in Orlando with a literal home court. So Miami has their Miami Vice court. We've seen the Pacers court and what they're going to look like, their practice courts. Now, in my opinion, you should just play on the practice courts. If you're going to build practice courts to look like the real NBA floor, are you going to do the same thing for the playing games and the playoff games? Well, maybe not the playing games because those are bad to bad to back to back. You wouldn't have time to switch the floors over. But like the playoff games, why not play on the practice courts or take the practice courts up out of the practice area and move them to the game floor for who's ever hosting. So if it's one versus eight Lakers versus let's say the Pelicans get in, then when the first two games of the series, it's on the Lakers floor. And then you swap it out for the Pelicans floor for the next two games. And if necessary, you keep swapping back and forth to give it some realism of what you would normally see on the floor. I think that's personally a great idea. But I'm not sure that's going to happen, considering that the NBA has said that they are going to put Black Lives Matter prominently on the court. Now, I'm not sure if that's going to be in the corners, like what the Lakers did with the Kobe Bryant uh, initials. I'm not sure that's going to be on the baseline. I'm not sure that's going to be like they used to have the NBA Finals logo on the floor, where it's going to be something like that. 
but they did say that they will have Black Lives Matter prominently displayed on the court as a way to keep the narrative about social injustice going. So whenever you see an aerial shot of the NBA game or a sideline camera view, there's gonna be Black Lives Matter in the screen somewhere. When you see a highlight package, it will be Black Lives Matter in the camera view somewhere. Now the NBA did say there's gonna be unforeseen and never before used camera angles in this bubble. Now I think that's easier than normal due to the fact that there's no fans. So you can set up the camera lower, you can set up the camera at different angles because you're not worried about blocking fans, you're not worried about blocking media on the baseline in the media section, you don't know about blocking anybody. So you can set up a camera anywhere. You can attach a camera to a ref's chest so when he's watching a play and looking for a foul, there's stuff like that. I'm not sure what the camera angles are. Adam Silver has been pretty close to the vest about that. But considering how he started in the NBA as the media person, I'm sure he's very excited about the different possibilities of showing off this beautiful game we know as basketball. Now, there is a second bubble beginning to emerge. And the second bubble is going to be, at this time, presently being built in Chicago. So the second bubble would be the eight non-bubble teams as currently assembled. So that'd be teams like the Hawks, that'd be teams like the Warriors, the Hornets, the Bulls, the Cavaliers, the Pistons, the Timberwolves, and the Knicks would all be eligible for the second bubble that is currently being constructed inside of Chicago, or that would be proposed to be done in Chicago. Now that's a bit interesting because Chicago doesn't have a Disney World type area where they can just block off this one area. I assume that they'd be testing daily. People would be locked in hotels inside of Chicago. Games would be played at the United Center. If I had to assume, uh, one team was not on the call for the second bubble, and that was the New York Knicks. So I assume they have no interest in the second bubble. I'm not sure why teams would be willing to do the second bubble. You'd be risking coronavirus and the same concerns about social injustice for literally nothing. You can't win a championship out of the second bubble. There is no highest of the worst in the second bubble. Effectively, you would be worsening your chance at the number one overall pick at guys like James Wiseman, LaMelo Ball, Anthony Edwards, and other top prospects in this upcoming draft because if you end up winning five out of seven games, let's just say, you may fall from a 25% chance to a 10% chance at landing the number one overall pick, which could seriously affect you in the draft lottery. So I'm not sure why this second bubble would even exist outside of further TV ratings for the NBA and possible revenue to make up for the lack of a traditional playoff structure and not having fans in the stands for, let's say, an LA versus the LA battle for the Western Conference Finals or Giannis versus LeBron filling up stadiums and filling up TV ratings. Other than that, I don't get the benefit of having the second bubble. I mean, you're risking your safety, you're risking your health, you're risking losing the ability to actively protest in the streets for no reason besides playing some games and then being off again for a couple of months, more like a traditional summer break for, for the next season gears up tentatively early December. So that's a very interesting situation that the NBA is even considering the second bubble along with trying to even perfect the first bubble that I have little confidence is going to be perfect. I think it's going to be pretty well done. I'm sure guys will catch it, but the goal is to catch the people who have contracted the coronavirus, isolate them quickly, 
so that way they do not tarnish or put an asterisk by this season which I do not think deserves an asterisk at all, barring that someone like the Pelicans wins because everybody they played on the way contracted the coronavirus or something of that nature. Something weird happens like that. If everyone is, for the most part, healthy, so if we've got 11 out of the normal 12 guys there for every team and then only a couple, on the main teams, I should say, and then you just play basketball, the winner is the winner. There does not need to be an asterisk there at all. Unless something weird happens, like an unusual rash of soft tissue injuries from layoff or the Dallas Mavericks end up champion or the Washington Wizards get to the Eastern Conference Finals or something like that, where it could be completely unforeseen on normal circumstances, I don't think it deserves an asterisk. But that's just my opinion. You've got guys on both sides of the fence. Some say it deserves an asterisk, one of the hardest championships ever. Others say it deserves an asterisk as not even counting as a real championship. So we'll have to see what happens. And I think that history will be looking at this as a really, really hard championship to win because not only were you fighting the team you're on the court with, you're trying to avoid catching a disease and a pandemic. You're also trying to get yourself mentally prepared to go for games with no fans in the crowd. So that'll be interesting in and of itself. There's no home court advantage. You're not playing on any court you probably ever played on before. So it'd be a completely new situation and a very different championship to try and win. But all in all, I'm very excited about the bubble. We get basketball back July 30th. I expect ratings to be massive for the NBA's bubble along with the WNBA's bubble. And I expect that we have a good crown champion in both sports by the time this thing is over and one that will not deserve an asterisk. And up next, we're going to touch briefly on what Maya Moore has been doing since she stepped away from the WNBA. Hey guys, and we're back. And now we're going to discuss Maya Moore and the great acts that she's been up to the last couple of years. So... Maya Moore is one of the greatest female basketball players ever. She has four WNBA championships and six finals appearances. She has multiple finals MVPs. She was a part of the 100 plus win UConn team in college. She has Olympic gold medals. She has anything you can ever think of in terms of basketball, even winning a couple of European league titles in her career. And she decides that a couple of years ago, she was stepping away from the game in order to help a gentleman by the name of Jonathan Irons be released from prison that he was wrongfully convicted. He had a 50 year sentence and he was released a couple days ago. And after serving over 22 years, he was released. Now, Maya Moore stepped away before the age of 30. She gave up her career. She put it on pause. For this cause. Now, she met Mr. Irons while at Connecticut through a program. Happened to meet, was inspired by his story, and didn't take action at the time, probably because she didn't know how or didn't have the resources how or the ability to really affect change. But Mr. Irons and his story stuck in her mind. And so, a couple of years ago, like I said, she just gave up her career. She put it on pause. One of the most impressive female careers ever. She put on indefinite hiatus to go help Mr. Irons be released from prison after 22 years when he was convicted at 18. 
Now, Mr. Irons is now 40, but he has been freed from prison. And Maya Moore, I mean, wow. I mean, the words cannot express the level of dedication this took. And she spoke about how it was a joyous moment when to see him walk out of prison. He was a amazing experience to see. It was an amazing video to watch her and watch her reaction because she had fought for this for the past two years, paused her career, gave up everything and to help this cause. And she's going to continue to do things like this. Now there's no word on whether she's coming back to the WNBA. I highly doubt she'll be back this season considering that she probably has not trained for basketball in maybe up to two years. Definitely not in time recently enough to gear back up and then go play for the Minnesota Lynx in the WNBA's bubble at IMG in Florida. But maybe we see her back next season, but I'm sure she'll continue to be involved in causes like this. And if she never comes back, good. It is not a situation where she owes us anything. She doesn't owe us anything on the court. Her off the court work is more important to the world than her ability to play basketball. I would love to see her back on the links. She's one of the best players I've ever seen. She can literally do everything. She can shoot, she can defend, she can pass. She is a great leader. She's an obvious winner. She's great for the world itself, as we can see through this act. I would love to see her back on the court, but if she decides that she's done with basketball and she's gonna move into that space and work for social injustice and give her life to that, more power to her. I will applaud her just as hard I root for her just as passionately in that field. And I just had to give time to thank her for what she did. And I hope she continues to do things like this and to get the conversation started, keep it going and to inspire more people to get involved in situations like this. So I guess I wanna thank you, Miss Maya Moore, for what you've done for Mr. Jonathan Irons. And I want to hope that you come back to the WNBA selfishly. But uh, non-selfishly, I am glad you're doing what you feel is best for the world and what the world needs this moment in time. And now we're going to shift to our best for last and talk about the craziest free agent recruitment of all time, LeBron James. Alrighty, guys, and we're back for our best for last segment. Now, we are nearing the 10-year anniversary of the decision, which is when LeBron James said his famous line that I'm taking my talents to South Beach and join the Miami Heat with Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh. Now, this free agency recruitment was something like we've never seen before. It completely shifted the dynamics of the NBA from more of a management ownership power structure to where players had a lot of control. So in this summer, Bill Simmons states that the Knicks were the favorite. LeBron wanted to be a Nick. But when the Knicks had the meeting, they had Donnie Walsh in the wheelchair in attendance and James Dolan, James Dolan did. And ultimately, LeBron decided that the Knicks were not the best place for him. So that ruled the Knicks out. And then this led to a contingent of teams being the Miami Heat were involved. Obviously, the Cleveland Cavaliers wanted his services back. The New Jersey Nets at the time were involved with Jay-Z and company and the Chicago Bulls. Now, the New Jersey Nets had a great pitch. Jay-Z preached a lot about New York, preached a lot about business opportunities. Unfortunately, the Nets were still in New Jersey. 
I believe if the Nets were in Brooklyn, they would have had an amazing shot at LeBron because he would have still been in the New York market like the Knicks, but he would have been for a pretty decently run franchise in the Nets. They had an opportunity to get a second star. A lot of teams had cleared the two max salary slots for LeBron James to bring in a co-star so he can compete for championships. But the Nets just didn't have enough to offer at that time, especially with new Russian billionaire owner Mikhail Prokhorov literally purchasing the team a few weeks before this meeting had started. So they were in that battle, but the Nets ultimately were ruled out. When it came down to Cleveland, no star was going to go to Cleveland. Dwayne Wade wasn't going. Chris Bosh had told LeBron he wasn't going. So when Dan Gilbert and the rest of the crew pitched LeBron on coming back and winning a title in Cleveland, they asked him any chance Chris Bosh could come to Cleveland. And LeBron said he didn't know Bosh that well and didn't know his plans, which was untrue. But he didn't want to tip the hand to anybody either way. But he knew Bosh wasn't going to Cleveland. And so ultimately that ruled the Cavaliers out. So it left the Bulls and the Heat. Now, the Bulls, from their angle, talked to Dwayne Wade, but they didn't want to give Dwayne Wade too much of their plan initially because they didn't want Dwayne Wade to go to Miami, tell the Bulls' plan, and then Miami just does what the Bulls are going to do, and D-Wade ultimately stays with the Heat. So they had a plan, they had a way to get three max slots to get Dwayne Wade, presumably, Chris Bosh, and the big kicker, LeBron James. Now, Dwayne Wade was from the Chicago area, and he beamed with happiness when he tried on the Bulls jersey with Wade and three on the back. I mean, it would be like coming home. It would just be the ultimate situation. Sort of like when LeBron was leaving in Cleveland, he would be going into in Chicago, the hometown kid trying to revitalize the Bulls brand. But the Bulls brand wasn't dead. They had a 21-year-old budding superstar named Derrick Rose at the time. They had a crafty, young, wily, attitude-filled Joe Kim Noah at the five, tough as nails. They had a tough as nail coach in Tom Thibodeau, which this Bulls team ends up being, in my opinion, the biggest rival for the Heat in the East during the Big Three era that ultimately came out of this. But Chicago ultimately lost out because for two reasons. One, LeBron and D-Wade and company didn't feel like Derrick Rose really wanted them there. He fought back against the idea of it. He didn't do much in the recruiting process, which is not a shot at Derrick Rose or even a plight at Derrick Rose. He was 21 years old. He had not been in the era of empire building or trying to build a lasting legacy at that time. He was only 21 years old. No blame to that. I don't know if at 21 years old, being the best player on the team, I would be so open to being four. I mean, LeBron's obviously was the best player in the league at the time. You can argue him and Kobe. Dwayne Wade would be better than Derrick Rose. Chris Bosh would be better than Derrick Rose. Arguably, that'd be arguable. He'd be arguable to third fiddle on what he deemed was his own team. So I don't know if I would be as perceptive at 21 years old being at the top of my game to three new guys showing up and being the creme de la creme, and all of a sudden it's the big three plus Derrick Rose and Joe Kim Noah. So I don't really blame him there. Joe Kim Noah was very active in the recruiting process. Being an older guy, playing on championship teams at Florida with Al Horford, coached by Billy Donovan, he knew, gather as much talent as he possibly can, let's go win multiple championships. But ultimately, the Bulls did not have a way to create a third max slot. 
they were trying to move Luol Dane's contract was the holdup. Now they could have moved it to Toronto and a sign and trade for Chris Bosch to get Bosch to Chicago, along with getting Toronto, Luol Dane, some picks back. Uh, and they couldn't really find a taker for Luol Dane's contract, which ultimately ruled out the Bulls. And that left the Miami Heat. Now, the Heat had a very, very good way of reducing their team to one singular contract on the books. And they dropped it all the way down to one contract and then negotiated signing trades with the Cavs. Because ultimately, LeBron signed his six-year deal not with the Heat. He signed it with the Cavs and then was immediately traded to the Heat. So they took a little less money, all three of them, doing away, took a little bit less than everybody to bring back guys like Udonis Haslam, and then they filled in the roster with veteran minimum guys. That's why that team started Joel Anthony and started um, Mike Miller at certain points because they were getting veteran minimum guys to fill out the rest of the roster, surrounded by Braun, Wade, and Bosch. But it would have been a crazy situation if Chicago could have found a way to pull it off. I mean, imagine you starting lineup with 21-year-old Derrick Rose, LeBron in the peak of his powers, Dwayne Wade in the peak of his powers, Chris Bosch at his prime of his career, and a young, fiery Joe Kim Noah, who would have at that point been a screen setter, rebounder, defender. His perfect role would have had to do nothing offensively under a great defensive coach like Tom Thibodeau. Now, would LeBron and Tom Thibodeau warn each other out? Maybe. But it would have been amazing to see. But ultimately, the Heatles were born. And we got not five, not six, not seven. And the greatest era of Miami Heat basketball came to exist. The era of basketball I grew up on. And honestly, that was probably better than what it could have been in Chicago in terms of a show and what ultimately happened there. And we know the rest is history. LeBron goes back to Cleveland, wins a ring there, wins two of Miami with the big three. And that concluded the greatest free agency or greatest recruitment of a player ever. It was absolutely amazing to watch in real time. I didn't even know half of the stuff that happened when it did because a lot of it was kept behind closed doors and only came out recently in ESPN articles. But that wraps up today's show. It was a packed one. It was a little longer one than normal, the one I'd like to do. But ultimately, it was a great show. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope you guys did it well. You can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts under Just In Time Sports. Tell your friends, subscribe, like us, uh, follow the Twitter at Daytime Sports on Twitter. I do a lot of breaking news there, including Bubble, NFL, NBA, WNBA. There's some MMA stuff sometimes. So give that a look, give that a follow, turn on those post notifications. That way you're always informed from all the different sources at one location. Uh, Tell your friends, like I said, I hope you guys have a great day. We do these things weekly, so look out for it next week. And I hope you guys have a blessed day.